0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. We are reproducing some of the symposia and plenary sessions from the Society for Range Management's 2020 Annual Meeting and Training in Denver for the podcast. I selected sessions in consultation with the meeting and technical program chairs that we believed would be widely applicable and that would not depend heavily on the listener being able to see the accompanying slideshow with photographs and charts. With the speaker's permissions, we will provide contact information for each speaker so that you can request additional information from them directly if you are especially interested in their topic.
1: Good morning, SRM. Thank you so much for getting here bright and early. I feel incredibly honored to be here speaking in front of so many people that I deeply respect. I'm excited to talk to you about some topics that I care about very much. My favorite plenary talks have been idea rich and data poor. I've taken that approach here as well, so you won't need to ingest too many graphs and tables before you finish your coffee. Someone once told me that if you don't change your mind about something important every 10 years, you're stagnating as a human being. The thing you change your mind about can't be something small. It's got to be something fundamental, something all your good friends know about you. In other words, to keep growing as humans, we must transform. I'm not sure I've kept up with this high standard in my own life and career, but one of my goals has always been to stay fiercely open-minded and be ready for transformation. I have always been tempted to resist categories, to zoom in at the boundaries and search for gradients and complexity. Today, I'm going to tell you stories about three things I've changed my mind about in my relatively short career. I want to be self-aware here about what this talk is. I think the best way for me to talk to you about rangeland management is to share some stories about my own experiences and lessons learned. These stories may not resonate with everyone, and certainly many critical topics will be omitted. That's okay, because right after this, Leslie is going to talk to us about grand challenges in rangelands. In the meantime, I hope these stories will engage your curiosity or spark a discussion here at the meeting. I'm also hoping these ideas will point to some strategies for moving through the controversies and challenges, both grand and little, that face this community. Before I jump in, I want to recognize the contributions of my mentors, mentees, collaborators, field technicians, landowner partners, and funders. Most of these insights actually came from other people, and I feel very lucky to be surrounded by so many inspiring people. Okay, three stories of transformation. I'm going to tell you something now that I really don't want you all to know about me, but I put the word humility in my title, so this is where I have to start. I grew up in suburbia. I did not attend FFA. I didn't even know what FFA was. My great uncle ran a small family dairy farm in upstate New York, so I thought all cows lived in big red barns with kittens in the loft. I knew wild animals lived in zoos and national parks and other places where there were no people. I'm telling you this for a couple reasons. For one thing, I want to emphasize that the people who want to call SRM our home society actually come from a wide variety of different backgrounds and perspectives. I'm also telling you this because growing up in suburbia, I decided I was going to save all the world's beautiful, diverse plants and animals from the rampant destruction of humankind. In the years since, several experiences have helped to broaden my perspective on conservation. I studied abroad in Botswana during college. Near the end of the semester, my class took a trip to the central Kalahari where we drove around and saw vast landscapes filled with thriving plants and wildlife. During the drive, we stopped in a village and were introduced to a community of indigenous San people. We learned that these people were being actively forced to leave their homelands and their livelihoods in order to create a new game reserve for wildlife. Something struck me as fundamentally and morally wrong about that whole situation. Why did the area have to support either humans or wildlife? We had just seen humans and wildlife, not just surviving together, but thriving together. The creation of a game reserve was the creation of a false dichotomy with negative ethical and existential implications for both the community we met and also humans at large, because as a species we have historically lived in nature rather than separated from it. That experience started me down the path of studying plant ecology and conservation in working landscapes. Of course, I soon realized that the same issues and the same false dichotomies have long challenged and are still challenging people who live with wildlife in rural places all over the world, including right here in the US. So this was the first transformation from saving nature to balancing conservation with livelihoods in working landscapes. I believe many of us here are working hard on this because we know we can't meet our goals for conservation or for production and livelihoods by separating people and wildlife. I started to work on livestock production and conservation issues in Kenyan savannas. At around this time, I realized I had transformed into a rangeland ecologist. One thing I love about rangelands and rangeland ecology is that by definition, they include humans and their management decisions. Ecology is already complex, but when you bring in the complexity of management and human decision-making, I think it gets even more interesting. In Kenya, people had been managing livestock in the context of wildlife for quite some time. I worked there studying interactions among plants, livestock management, and wildlife. I learned that there can be win-wins between livestock production and conservation. I think most of you here would agree that more often than not, there's some untapped potential for win-wins in certain places, at certain times, or at certain scales. However, I also learned that win-wins are not always possible. Sometimes the trade-offs are real and it's generally true that you can't achieve every objective everywhere all the time. In Kenya, I mostly worked on temporary cattle corrals or bomas. For a long time in Eastern and Southern Africa, herders have been keeping livestock in thorn fence bomas at night to protect them from predators. Livestock graze in areas around the boma during the day. Through this process, livestock move a bunch of nutrients and seeds from surrounding areas into the boma site. After some time, it could be weeks, months, or years, Herders abandon the boma and move livestock to a new grazing area. Over time, the abandoned boma site develops into a treeless ecosystem hotspot that we call a glade. I want to stress here that the concentration of livestock does not somehow magically create this nutrient-rich, productive site. Livestock are removing nutrients from the surrounding area and concentrating them into one place. The resultant glades support unique, palatable plants and attract abundant and diverse wildlife species. Some wildlife even rely on glades to meet critical nutrient requirements. This is a win-win. Livestock management creates glades that support both production and biodiversity. So given that, we should create glades everywhere, right? Boma density is already increasing in East Africa, and maybe this is a good thing. The impact of a boma is known to extend beyond the physical boundaries of the cattle corral. In fact, bomas cause changes at distances out to 100 or 150 meters from the corral edge. So I expected that if two BOMAs were placed close together, they might generate an even larger area with the same ecosystem hotspot properties as the glade itself. Thus, two BOMAs might merge together to create a large superglade. So we did a bunch of research on this, both observational studies and manipulative studies where we put corrals at different distances apart. What we found was actually really surprising. Bomas that were very close together did, in fact, merge. However, bomas at intermediate distances had the opposite outcome. Areas in between these sites ended up becoming very bushy, with low nutrient quality and undesirable plant species. This is likely because cattle were foraging and trampling in between the corral sites, but they weren't depositing enough nutrients from surrounding areas to convert these sites into productive glades. Thus, a few hundred feet and a little less dung turned a win-win situation into a trade-off. This experience taught me that I have to be very careful with extrapolating results and work hard to understand the complicated relationships between herbivores and their environments. This leads me into my second transformation topic, which has to do with my realization that rangelands and rangeland ecology are highly complex and context dependent. They do not operate the same way as mathematics. I put this picture up here because whenever I talk to forest ecologists, I like to talk to them about grasslands as just tiny forests. Just because the plants are short doesn't mean they're homogenous. Grasslands have diverse canopies with multiple layers and functions. They create create habitat for many different species. And these tiny forests are incredibly dynamic in space and time. Working in rangelands, we cannot assume that A plus B will equal C all the time or in every place. I think many of our experiences on the ground support this idea. We know that what works in one place might not work in another place. We know that what works in a wet year might not work in a dry year. We know that the answer is usually it depends. And yet, even as we understand at some level the importance of context, our profession seems to be obsessed with asserting that a given management strategy or a given ecological relationship should operate the same way across vast swaths of time and space. We keep looking for and being very tempted by the idea of one size fits all. If you graze this way, all will be right in the world. So my goal in the next few minutes is to give you a couple examples of work I have been involved with that's convinced me of the immense complexity and context dependence of disturbance processes in Rangeland. One issue I've been working on is the relationship between fire and cheatgrass invasion. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the cheatgrass wildfire feedback cycle that occurs in the Intermountain West. Cheatgrass increases fine fuel loads and fuel continuity, which leads to fire and wildfire can lead to additional invasion. Ultimately, this feedback can lead to converted ecosystems dominated by cheatgrass. These converted ecosystems now cover millions of acres in the Western US. Converted sites are typically associated with reduced plant diversity, less wildlife habitat, and lower livestock weight gains than unconverted areas the cheatgrass fire cycle also results in costly firefighting and rehabilitation efforts across huge areas. I had done some work on the fire invasion feedback cycle in the Great Basin, and when I moved out to the western Great Plains, I wondered if cheatgrass played the same game in this region, which has a somewhat different climate and different history of fire and grazing. I found a few articles showing that prescribed fire in the Great Plains actually reduced annual brome cover. I started working in the Thunder Basin region of Northeast Wyoming, which is an ecotone or boundary zone separating the sagebrush steppe and the Great Plains. This region is very diverse and supports a whole bunch of interesting plant and animal species, as well as rangeland agriculture and energy development. Ecotones like Thunder Basin tend to be very sensitive to environmental change, and they can respond to disturbance in surprising ways. My collaborators and I asked how fire impacted cheatgrass in this ecotone both with an observational study and more recently with experimental manipulations. We found that historical wildfires had very little effect on cheatgrass in this system. If anything, cheatgrass cover was slightly lower in burned areas than unburned areas. And so far, our manipulative experiment also supports this result. So why does cheatgrass behave so differently in the Great Plains compared to the Intermountain West? I think it makes sense if we think about spatial context. In the Great Plains, a higher amount of summer precipitation favors native perennials over winter annuals like cheatgrass, and native plants in the Great Plains have a longer evolutionary history of high levels of disturbance, both by large ungulate herbivores like bison and by fire, so they are more tolerant of these disturbances. Ultimately, the relationship between cheatgrass and fire can't be predicted unless we take spatial context into account. The story gets even more complicated if we add grazing into the mix. In my own relatively short career, I found evidence that livestock grazing can promote invasion and it can prevent invasion. It can enhance and reduce forage production. It can enhance and reduce plant diversity. It can improve or degrade habitat quality for wildlife. Different types of grazing at the same site can produce identical outcomes or divergent outcomes. The same type of grazing applied in different places or at different times of year can generate very different outcomes. So I'm not saying we know nothing. In the midst of all this complexity, we have managed to figure some things out. For example, we know that stocking rate is an important driver of outcomes across many contexts. And this community also knows an awful lot about how to sustainably produce livestock under wildly variable conditions. What I am saying is that maybe we need to focus less on what works everywhere and more on why certain things work in certain places or for certain objectives. And we need to embrace the idea that there are likely multiple ways to apply grazing management in order to achieve a given objective in a a given place. In other words, we may want to spend less time searching for general rules and more time embracing and exploring the complexity within our own science. For example, with this cheatgrass issue, there's a lot of controversy around relationships between grazing and cheatgrass. A history of heavy grazing has been widely implicated in the spread of tree grass across the American West. We also have current examples where heavy or in some cases even moderate grazing has been linked to invasion in the Intermountain West. We have work explaining how this can happen via impacts on bio-crusts or perennial plants. We also have examples of cases from the same part of the world in which moderate grazing has worked to suppress invasion, for example, by reducing the frequency or severity of wildfires. In the Western Great Plains, we have evidence from multiple studies that some level of grazing may be necessary to resist the invasion of cheatgrass and other weedy plants. In my study area in Northeast Wyoming, for example, exclosures that have been keeping livestock out for over 50 years have three times as much cheatgrass as areas exposed to moderate grazing. And these long-term exposures also have significantly fewer native plant species. In northern Arizona both heavy grazing and a lack of grazing appear to be associated with more cheatgrass than moderate grazing. And finally there's been some great recent work showing that it may be possible to use livestock grazing to specifically target cheatgrass. Managers may be able to graze at times of the year when cheatgrass is more palatable or more vulnerable than other more desirable plants or they They can graze to reduce fuel loads, which can reduce wildfire risk or severity. I think this new work on targeted grazing really emphasizes that grazing can have dramatically different effects depending on when and how it is applied. So what do we do with all this complexity in our science and our management? In cases when results don't match expectations, I think a common tendency is to challenge. Oh, they ignored this or that in the study. Oh, it was a dry year, it was a really wet year, or it was done in an ecotone. This result was confounded because of X, Y, or Z. And all of that may be true. However, I would argue there's probably a lot of useful information in every rangeland study or management trial, even and perhaps especially the ones that were done differently or done during a very wet year or during a very dry year. We are still a fairly young discipline, but we have enough information now that I think we can and should begin synthesizing across studies more. Rather than writing off findings that don't fit our current worldview, our challenge should be to broaden the view in ways that reconcile multiple findings or multiple truths. This leads me directly to my third topic, which has to do with collaborative research. I was hired back in 2013 to build a collaborative research program in Northeast Wyoming. So these next few slides are built from a talk I co-presented last summer with my main collaborator from that region, Dave Pellets, who is the executive director of the Thunder Basin Grasslands Prairie Ecosystem Association. And his family has been ranching in Thunder Basin for generations. We wanted to share a little bit about the process we went through to build a collaborative research program. So I don't have time to share the entire talk with you, but I want to highlight a couple of points. First, we found there are a number of benefits to collaborative research approaches. In particular, more perspectives usually foster creative solutions to complex problems. And these solutions also tend to have greater relevance to stakeholders and buy-in from stakeholders. So the potential for real world impact is very high. However, there are also some substantial challenges associated with collaborative research. Scientists are typically looking for a signal in the noise. This is why we're so stubborn about doing things the same way at every site, about randomizing and replicating. But managers are dealing with the noise, trying to work through the peculiarities of each individual situation or site to get to a good outcome on the ground. So there's a trade-off there between learning and doing. As a result, translating real-world problems into high-quality research projects can be very difficult. One thing the stakeholders I work with have learned is that research is incredibly slow and costly and piecemeal. And on the scientist side, doing stakeholder-driven work can sometimes mean that scientific contributions are more incremental or regional. For example, it may be important to determine if a result that has been found elsewhere is also found here. Dave and I also identified a couple of dangers to avoid when working to build a collaborative program. One big one is the fact that different stakeholder groups may assume research results will support their management or policy agenda. Scientists need to be clear upfront about the nature of their work. Results are unknown and there are strict ethical standards surrounding data and research and publication. It's also important to be clear upfront that in this field, a scientific study is not likely to generate the final complete answer to a real world problem on the first try. The typical answer is it depends. So what has worked for us? First, being bi-directional and collaborating at all stages of research, not just the end, and not just the beginning either. Along these lines, one thing we try to do is continually work with stakeholders to interpret research results and evaluate them against local knowledge. I'm going to give you a short example here. From 2015 to 2017, we took a bunch of data on how black-tailed prairie dogs impacted plant biomass in Thunder Basin. Since prairie dogs eat plants and we know they compete with cattle for forage, we expected to find that there was less biomass inside prairie dog colonies than outside of colonies. However, we found no significant effect of prairie dog presence on overall biomass in any of those years. This was pretty curious, but I tended to trust the data, particularly since the years included a dry year, an average year, and a wet year. I took these results back to the local stakeholders and they were unconvinced. They provided some good feedback and my collaborators and I turned around and tried to dig deeper into the data. And we also collected more data from more sites. The first thing we noticed was that the effect of prairie dogs on biomass appeared to depend on spring precipitation. So prairie dogs dramatically reduced biomass in in sites or years with dry springs and actually increased biomass in sites or years with wet springs. That risk of very low forage in dry years could be really important for producers, even if total biomass isn't that different on average across years. We also looked at the data by functional group and realized that species composition was really different between colonies and non-colony locations. So colonies had much less grass biomass and much more biomass of short-lived forbs. These short-lived plants may be somewhat useful to livestock early in the season, but they're a very ephemeral forage resource. The difference in composition may mean that forage on colonies is especially limiting during the dormant season, when the annuals have all disappeared and when we researchers are not usually out there measuring. So where does all this leave us? It leaves us in a place where multiple truths were reconciled through collaboration. Yes, on average, total biomass did not differ between colonies and non-colony locations. At the same time, colonies create a big risk of forage limitation, both in dry years and during the dormant season. I think I probably wouldn't have dug deeper into this issue if I hadn't been working closely with people in the region who pushed me to find ways of building on that initial study. In order to do this type of work, collaboration also needs to be adaptive, local, and sustained. As the real-world problems change, the focus of the research also needs to shift. Researchers need to build ties to and commitment to place and understand how different stakeholders relate to place. And both scientists and stakeholders need to be ready to commit huge amounts of time and money to the collaborative process. The Prairie Dog and biomass story really emphasizes that on most topics, the community of ranchers and agencies and conservation groups out there in northeast Wyoming don't actually need me to figure out how things work so that they can manage better. One role of rangeland science may be to quantify and present to the outside world the things people on the ground already know. Along the way, we may come up with some surprising insights, or new win-win opportunities. But I think researchers probably focus far too much attention on telling people how to manage, on changing hearts and minds. In my experience, telling managers or researchers that they're doing things wrong is typically not a good strategy. So what if instead we focus all that energy on listening to each other, understanding complexity, and reconciling multiple truths that are out there in the world? It's possible we are all partly or mostly right, and we just need to figure out why and how and in what contexts. I want to come back now to the idea of humility because this third transformation I went through was a shift in the idea of how I personally want to make change. We need scientists working across systems and at the global scale and identifying the threads that hold across space and time. But I'm realizing that that may not be the only or my favorite role. I'm now more interested in digging into the complexities and communities associated with specific places. I want to really understand them and hopefully find some win-win opportunities or at least quantify some trade offs for the stakeholders livestock and wildlife who live in or care about those places. I think there's a lot of value in doing research in a way that focuses on really listening to and respecting multiple perspectives so that the results we produce not only qualify as facts, but also as truths that many people can buy into and get behind. In the end, I hope this approach might help to reduce polarization in our society, especially surrounding the role of science. And maybe such an approach will also help all the world's plants, animals, and people survive and thrive together. Thanks for listening.